Well, good morning. Good to see everyone this morning. Appreciate all the prayers. Uh, while we were sick, there's been a lot of folks out sick uh, lately. Seems as though the uh, flu flu bug is back, and uh, among among other things. But we're glad to see you. Glad to see you all here this morning. John chapter 6. I was able to come in this week uh, for a couple of days and study for this passage uh, to finish up John chapter 6. And I have thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed going through this, going through this uh, chapter. I will call your attention to verses 66 through 71 as we read the Word of God together. After this, many of His disciples turned back and no longer walked with Him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he was one of the twelve was going to betray him. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless his word. Father, we do come to you this morning thanking you for the opportunity once again to come, to gather, to worship as you have commanded us to do, and to worship you in ways that are dictated by you and your word. We thank you for this time we have and for the scripture that we have read. We pray, Lord, that you would bless it, that you would teach us through it, remind us of who you are and who we are, and of the great salvation that you have provided for us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. There is an element in this passage that often goes uh, unacknowledged. And that is the element of the tender heart of the Son of God. How must Jesus have felt when after every possible attempt to convince these hard-hearted Jews that he was who he claimed to be, and then to watch them simply turn and walk away, have nothing to do with him after that. Enveloped in this narrative is the unstated pain of rejection and the supernatural knowledge of the final outcome for these who had turned away. Jesus knew what was going to be the end of these people. I can envision a tear of sorrow in the eye of Jesus as he watched them walk away from him, rejecting him. Do we think that Jesus was so callous that he would say, "Um, okay, that's that's what you want? Then 
Go ahead. Walk away. No, I don't think that's the attitude Jesus had at all. Uh, I can see the same attitude here as was found in Matthew 23 when Jesus said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those that are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together? (coughs) As a chicken, as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. They were not willing because they did not want a sovereign God taking charge and mastery over their lives. This is always the, this is always the disagreement that God has to have first place in every life that, that is His. And so these people just turned and walked away. They, they defected. Now what did these false disciples turn back to? Well, they went back to their old life that they had always known. They went back home. They went back to their old relationships. They went back to the world. They went back to their dead moralism. They went back to the inadequate secular ideologies. They went back to the very familiar place of their concept of maximum human freedom in which they were imprisoned and they never walked with him again. What a sad commentary on those who had eternal life offered to them. By the creator of the universe and they outright rejected it. They proved that they were not fit for the kingdom. For Jesus said in Luke 9, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom. Mark it down. Those who claim to be Christians but go back to the world and live like the world and love the world are not Christians at all. Now Jesus poses the question to the twelve. He asked them, do you want to go away as well? The NASB has, do you, you do not want to go away too, do you? The question expects a negative answer. Jesus knows those that are his own. And he knows those who are not his own. So what he's doing in asking this question is contrasting the false from the true. False disciples only care about what this life has to offer and the things in this life. True disciples care about the life that is found in Jesus Christ because they realize that this physical life with all that it has is only temporary. difficult for us to remember that, that this life is temporary. What we see around us, what we have, the things we're involved in will all be gone one day. (coughs) 
In one sense, when you come to the end of this discourse, what you see is uh, an utter failure of the early ministry of Jesus. He started out with 5,000 plus people following him at the beginning of chapter 6. And he ended up with 11 true disciples at the end. That's not a very good ratio. That does not fit the, the idea of the pragmatic church today. It certainly echoes the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 7 when he said the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few, few. These 11 disciples are a distinct group of those who are called by the Father to be given as gifts to the Son. They are a distinct group. Now, in eternity, I want you to think about it for a second. In eternity, there will only be a few that will find life in Christ. Now, that seems difficult to understand by virtue of the fact that Revelation chapter 7 sees the saints as a multitude that it cannot be numbered. But when you compare that representation in eternity, it is only a small group. It is a pittance of the vast numbers of humanity that take the broad way to destruction. There are many, many more that end up in hell than end up in heaven. Spurgeon said, better to go to heaven alone than to hell with a herd. So where can one go, where can anyone go, to find words that will assure and secure for them something beyond this life? Well, it's certainly not the false religions of the world. They have, they have no hope. One says you might come back as a dog or a rat. Another says when it's over, it's over. And you just go, you're just nothing. Another says you'll have virtually the same thing you have on earth, but it'll be favorable. See, there's only one place that you can go to find words of life. And Peter expresses that. He's the obvious spokesman for the group. And he answers with the right response. He asks the question, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life, of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now, Peter didn't always make the right comments when asked or when he opened his mouth. But here, he does. Peter is speaking for the group not knowing that there was one in the group who was an imposter. 
This would soon become known by them all. When Jesus asked if they wanted to go away too, he used the personal pronoun you in the plural. He's speaking to all of them, not just to Peter. So why would he ask this question? Well, there's a couple of reasons why. One is that he had a desire to strengthen and confirm the faith of these disciples as their master and their Lord. He wanted to hear them say it. This is what the Apostle Paul says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. There is a confession that's made upon the faith that one has in Christ. And Peter makes that confession. This is a vocal expression of their belief in Him and their longing to follow Him would give them strength to keep following Second, was for his own heart to be gladdened by the faithfulness of these disciples who stayed with him. This is what true disciples do. They stay. They remain. They don't defect. Now that's not to say that that disciples of Christ run into problems in their lives and they may have dips here and there and their faith may falter and it certainly does from time to time. But they do not ultimately defect. They do not ultimately walk away. It is impossible to happen. For we are kept by the power of God unto salvation, Peter says. Notice Peter's response. It proves that these disciples were listening to Jesus as he unfolded eternal facts concerning himself in the discourse that he has just made. They were listening. His first, Peter's answer is divided into two parts. First, he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Which is a rhetorical question, which elicits a response of, there's no one to go to. So it's sort of like he's saying, Jesus says, well, you're going to go away too? And he says, go where? Go away? Go to who? There's nobody else. And even if there was someone else to go to, that person would not have the words of eternal life. Only Jesus has those words. Only He can satisfy the yearning of the human heart. Peter may not have understood all that Jesus said in the fullness of this discourse about Himself and about salvation. For some of those things are difficult. But He did understand And he did get hold of the words that Jesus spoke in verse 63 when Jesus said, It is the Spirit who gives life. 
The flesh is no help at all. The words I have spoken to you, they are spirit and life. He got that. What Jesus says stands in eternity. It cannot be moved. It is undeniable. His words are life. Second, we see that Peter adds to this a second statement. And, he says, we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That is a significant statement. Some see this statement of Peter's as a sort of a presumption. Like he is comparing The twelve to those who turned away. It'd be like saying, well, Lord, where are we going to go? We chose to stay with you. As though it was a presumptuous statement based upon their own work of their own heart. But that is not the case. I believe this to be a sincere admission and confession of their faith in Jesus as the Messiah. He has already stated that there is life in his words and that those words cannot fail. And now he confesses faith and supernatural divine knowledge. This is Peter's confession. This was, this was the sentiment of the other Ten disciples, at least. When Peter says, we have believed and have come to know, he is making a confession, much like that of Matthew chapter 16. Turn to Matthew 16 with me, please, quickly. Notice verse... uh, well, let's just back up a, a couple of verse to thir- go to verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, here he is again, the spokesman. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. There's the confession. It is a confession of faith. In the next verse, Jesus tells him that he did not come to that on his own. He did not bring that into his own memory. It wasn't his doing, but that it was given to him from heaven. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And so Peter received this from the Father. This supernatural knowledge of who Jesus was. And I think it's the same thing stated here 
or same thing happening here, but not stated in that way. Peter has been given divine knowledge. And that divine knowledge is, is continuing on. Notice the words. Well, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. <clears throat> they all made confession in Matthew 14 when Jesus entered the boat after walking on the water. And they all said, truly, you are the Son of God. The words have believed and have come to know are in the perfect tense. Which says that they came to believe and came to know in the past. But the results of that are carrying on in present time. It's it's the same as when you believed in Christ. You believed at a point in the past, but your faith is carrying on now in the present. And it will continue to. And so, they had not ceased to believe. They had not ceased to understand who He was. They knew who He was. And so it's continuing on. It can't be turned on and off at will. God is the one who enacts this faith, this belief, and He is, and He is the one who keeps it going and it never stops. So just like the finality of those who turned away from Jesus, these disciples exhibit a faith that is final and ongoing. That's what the world wants to see. They don't know that, but that's what they want to see. They want to see something that's real. They want to see something that's genuine. They want to see something that is not wishy-washy on here and off there, up here and down there. They want to see a faith that stays the same no matter what comes to pass. And when tragedy, when sickness, when hard times come, And believers continue in the faith, believing in Christ. It says much to the world. They may not acknowledge it, but they see it. That's what makes it real. To them, at least. This same true knowledge that they had received from God about Jesus was the fact that he was the Holy One of God. That title speaks of his exclusivity as the one set apart and consecrated by God the Father to be the Savior of the world. He is exclusively the Savior of the world. There is no other Savior anywhere. And there never will be. The scriptures certainly bear this out. John chapter 10, verse 36. Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated or set apart and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Speaking of himself. Acts chapter 3, verses four, verse 14. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer. 
And in their prayer of Acts chapter 4, the disciples standing before the council, Peter and John, prayed in the hearing of them all. And they said, truly, in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Revelation 3 verse 7, he is called the Holy One, the True One, the Key of David, the one who who opens and no one shuts, and the one who shuts and no one opens. He's the Holy One of God. As this unique Son of God, He is the only one qualified and appointed to die for sinners. He himself not being a sinner. Listen to the comparison from scripture of sinful mankind versus the sinlessness of Christ. Job declared that that man is abominable and corrupt. One who drinks injustice like water. Solomon acknowledged that there is no one that does not sin, 1 Kings 8. John warned that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and make God a liar. The Apostle Paul summed it all up in Romans 3 when he said, There is none righteous, no, not even one. That's the plight of mankind. All are sinners. All die as sinners. However, the righteous, sinless life of Jesus is clearly stated in Scripture. The writer of Hebrews tells us that he is holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. Hebrews 7. The Apostle Paul boldly asserts that he knew no sin in 2 Corinthians 5. The announcement of his birth, the angel said, That holy one to be born... He is the Holy One who is to be born. Pilate's wife told her husband, have nothing to do with that just man. Even Pilate himself says, I find no fault in him. The thief on the cross said, this man has done nothing wrong. And the centurion looked looked at him and said, certainly this was a righteous man. Even the demons themselves Call him the Holy One of God. There's a vast difference between the sinfulness of mankind and the sinless righteousness of Jesus Christ. Their knowledge of him as the Holy One of God came from the Father. They believed in him with true God-given faith. Now, the crowd that walked away was only willing to receive Jesus as a source of food and entertainment. And when they didn't provide that, they left. The true disciple sees beyond that, beyond the here and now to the eternal. Their focus is not on the world, but on Christ, on things that are eternal. Things here fade. 
They grow old. They tarnish. Eternal things never fade. They never grow old. These things they found in Jesus Christ. If there is any pretension in Peter's statement, Jesus cuts quickly through it to humble his followers. Look at what he says in verse 70. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. There's no place for bragging or self-conceit in the grace of God shown to sinners. We are not God's children because we are a cut above the rest of the crowd. In fact, we are the worst of humanity. And if you don't have that view of yourself, at least before <coughs> before you came to know Christ, then you have the wrong view. We were nothing. There was nothing in us that was good. We weren't a cut above. We were like the songwriter says, worms. It was God who chose us for himself. We did not choose him ourselves. We have nothing to brag about except to brag on the cross of Christ. Is that not what Paul said? I don't want to hear anything among you except Jesus and him crucified. There's no boasting outside of the cross. That's all we can boast about. We had nothing to do with the salvation that we enjoy, that we have. They hadn't chosen Jesus. He had chosen them. Don't ever let that leave your mind. Don't ever let that leave your heart. When you begin to think well of yourself, just remember, you didn't choose Christ. He chose you. You would have never chosen Him. You're not a Christian because you chose Christ. You're a Christian because He chose you. There's nothing deserving in you that made Him choose you. It was all according to God's eternal plan of saving sinners by His grace, of whom we are all the foremost. However... Among those that Jesus had called, there was a traitor. One who would betray the Lord of glory and ultimately send him to the cross. His name was Judas. And in our minds, he is listed as the worst of the worst sinners. But in reality, Judas is no greater sinner than anyone else.
He was a vessel of dishonor that God chose to carry out that part of his plan and purpose. Is that hard? Yeah, you bet it is. It's hard. It's hard to think that God chose Judas for that purpose, but he did. The Apostle Paul tells us that God has vessels of dishonor and he has vessels of honor. He created them both and he can do with them as he pleases. And so, Jesus would not be speaking here in this passage about their election to salvation or about being chosen to salvation. He's choosing, he's talking about their being chosen as apostles. Did I not choose you, the twelve? So he's talking about their apostleship. But there comes a time as we move on through. And we know that's true because it's obvious that Judas was not a believer. So Jesus didn't choose Judas or God didn't choose Judas as a gift for his son because Judas was an unbeliever. But he did. Jesus did choose him as an apostle, even though he was a traitor. And as he called him a devil, look at that in a moment. Or I'll mention it to you, I don't have it in the notes. On the night before his death in the upper room, Jesus, after Judas had left the group and went out to betray the Lord, Jesus spoke to the eleven that were left and he referred to them, to, to his choosing of them. He chose them in salvation. Listen to what he says. You did not choose me. This is John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide that whatever you ask of my father in my name, he will give it to you. I chose you to go out and bear fruit. Fruit what? What fruit? Fruit of salvation. Fruit of a changed life. Fruit from a new heart. So we might ask, why did Jesus make this statement or this question? Why did he, why did he say that to them? Well, certainly it would be to wipe away any presumption that they were better than the other people who had walked away because they were no better than them. But no doubt it was so that Judas could not say, could never say that he had not been warned about his lost condition. Judas knew he was a deceiver. Judas knew he was false. And so, also, so the disciples would never think that the Lord had been taken unaware when Judas actually did betray him. Jesus knew he was going to betray him from the very beginning. And he said he was a devil. Now, what does he mean when he says that? Well, the word devil means a slanderer, deceiver, 
That's what Judas was. He deceived everyone in that group. They had no idea that Judas was a traitor. They had no idea that he was false. Until the night when he dipped his bread in the same place as Jesus. In fact, when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, they began to ask, well, who is it? Is it me? And John even said, Lord, is is it I? They had no idea Judas was a false believer. No idea at all. Jesus didn't reveal this to them at this time in John 6. He let it play out to the very end. Judas became the one to carry out Satan's work of slandering Jesus and bringing the authorities down on him. God was at work bringing all of his plan to pass. And Judas had not come to Jesus in true belief because he had not been granted to him by the Father. Verse 64. Now the thing that stands out in this chapter, throughout this chapter, is the ever-increasing unbelief and resistance to Christ and the salvation that he offered. You know, that... Resistance is still effective in humanity today. People are still resistant to the gospel message. They are still resistant to Christ as Lord. Coupled with that is the unbelief and resistance Jesus That Jesus grew increasingly and with greater force applied to him by the sovereignty of God. The the harder the resistance, the more Jesus spoke about the sovereignty of God. I find that very interesting. Wouldn't you think that that would just push people away even further? Now you see what happens is... As one begins to understand the sovereignty of God, they begin to see that God is the only answer to their sinful condition. They alone have no power to change anything in their life with regard to their sin or their relationship to God. It is only God that can do that. And so Jesus increases with greater force and applies the sovereignty of God. People can resist, and they do, but they can only resist to the point where God overrides that resistance and brings them to Christ. That's why you keep on praying, you keep on giving the gospel, you keep on telling it, you keep on witnessing it. Because you don't know what at some point God may grant repentance to that individual. And that is the beauty of God's matchless grace to sinners. A great passage. A passage that glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ as the Savior. 
and as the Lord, one that we would do well to keep in our minds as we go about our daily business. Do you know him today? I know most of you, and I, I think you most of you do. <clears throat> I pray that you do. I pray that you will see him as the sovereign one who has given salvation in the person of his son. And that you'll walk with him and you'll love him. And that he will be the treasure of your life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day. Thank you that we can come and gather together. And we pray, Lord, that you would use this, your word, to teach us to change our thinking with regard to who you are and who we are. There's no presumption in us, Lord. We don't think of ourselves as anything other than, as the Apostle Paul said, sinners who are the foremost. What we are, we are by the by your grace and your grace alone. You loved us when we were not worthy of being loved. And you saved us in spite of us. And we're thankful. So we pray, Lord, that you would remind us from this passage, this discourse, that you are indeed the bread of life. Your words have life in them. It is your flesh and your blood. We believe, Lord. Help our times of unbelief that we might walk with you and love you supremely and take everything in stride that is in the world, the things we own, the things we come come to, the turmoils that we face, the tragedies, the, the persecutions, whatever comes, Lord, you never change. You're always with us. And we're thankful. In Jesus' name, amen.